Welcome to Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. Healthy caregivers make better caregivers. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. If you want to learn more, find out more information, be a part of what we're doing, we'd love to have you visit, take a look around, join a Facebook group, contact me, whatever you need to do, hopeforthecaregiver.com. All right, I heard a great quote this week. And I wanted to open up our conversation with this. We're still at the hospital, by the way. It's gonna, it's taken a while. But that's all right. I told him, I said, look, we're not leaving until we know she's not coming back. So let's get her well. However, work continues. So here we are doing the program. All right. So I heard a great quote this week. And I told the person who shared it that I was going to steal it. And I am. It's grand larceny of material. Now, I'm not applying to be the president of Harvard, so I'm not all that worried. Actually, I don't know that the president of Harvard was all that worried about taking other people's material, but that's for them to decide, not me. For the purposes of today's program, I want to share this quote and see what you think. All right, you got your pens out? You ready to take this down? Let your scars speak, not your wounds. Let your scars speak, not your wounds. All right, now what does that mean? Well, one of the things that we've developed in our culture is this mentality of putting everything out there that doesn't need to be put out there. You know, you can blame it on Jerry Springer, but it actually goes back a lot further than that. But we we have this, I don't know, we're, we're... there's some kind of sick fascination with getting out there and blurting out stuff that really needs to be kept private and needs to be dealt with. And we as caregivers live with raw wounds. And the easy thing for us to do is just to blah and just get it all out there. Well, that's that needs to happen, but it needs to happen in a very contained, controlled, and private place. Okay? Not you know, out on social media. We used to have what we call testimony chapel when I was in Bible college many, many years ago, and it became nicknamed bragamony or testifony, or you always have that one individual who comes up and tries to, you know, win the contest of the most, you know, horrific story that's going on in their life or whatever. And I remember being in a choir at a church, and after we had prayer time with it, and I used to, Y'all, y'all don't tell anybody what I'm about to tell y'all because I'll get in a lot of trouble. So y'all just keep this twixt us. But I called it prayer wars because no matter what prayer request was given, there was always this one lady who would try to trumpet with some kind of just grotesque thing. You know, if somebody had a car accident and their leg was broken. Well, she knew somebody, you know, fell off a skyscraper and the girder pierced them through the eye. And, you know, it just went on and on. And I'm not, y'all don't tell anybody what I'm saying. I'm not making fun of her in the sense that, uh, you know, that certainly I want to pray for people who have it, but it was just like, there was always that one upmanship of just having these things that we'd like to parade out. You know, we it, it's a sick way of getting attention. There are people who have been saved from horrific things in their life, and I know them. And all of us have sinned, and some of us have pretty sensational sins. 
But it's not how lurid the tale. It's how great the Savior. And so if we're not constantly affirming the redemptive work of Christ, but rather instead we're just dwelling on the the, the sewer, then what are we doing? So when I hear that phrase, let your scar speak, not your wounds, you don't want to give a festering, angry wound a microphone, okay? It needs to be treated by professionals. It needs to be worked on. You know, Gracie's had a lot of wounds. We've had a lot of wound care, wound care teams and so forth that just don't want to heal. And some of you know with diabetes and so forth, things in that nature don't want to heal. Uh, Gracie's had more trauma. than di- She doesn't have diabetes. She has trauma. But it's hard to get things to heal sometimes. And that's when medical professionals zero in on that. They do all kinds of things to clean out the wound, to make sure it's not infected and abscessed, and you know all the things that's involved in cleaning a wound. How would you feel at church if somebody came up in front of the church and they pulled up their shirt and showed a festering wound on their abdomen or you know whatever? Well, that wouldn't be appropriate. And yet that's what a lot of us do emotionally. And we are in a culture that likes to show our festering wounds. They don't need to be paraded. They need to be treated by trained people who can help irrigate, clean, and let this wound scar over. Then once you have the scar, then you can let the scar speak because it's healed. You've dealt with it. And you look back and say, you know, I remember when that was painful, but it's healed now, and I'm so grateful. And let me tell you the healing process. And I had another friend that used to tell me years ago, process the pain privately. Share the process publicly. Don't process your pain out there in public. It's not appropriate, and it doesn't help anybody. You've heard me say this, some of you longtime listeners, about stand-up comedians. You can tell the ones who haven't worked through a lot of healing with some of the relationships they've had in their life. And so they use their stage, they make money off of it, but it's, you know, it's, it's harsh, it's abrasive, it's unpleasant. It's, you know, and, and that's not what we're about here. People can know that you're wounded. People can know that you are injured, but they don't get to see the graphic details. I, I liken it this way. Most everybody knows that it's related to us. I guess everybody knows that Gracie is an amputee. She's missing both of her legs below the knee. We all know that. Okay. But not everybody gets to see those limbs. You understand? So let your scars speak, not your wounds. We, we, we ha- it's, it's discretion. It's wisdom. It's discernment. That's the core of both of those statements. Process your pain privately. Share the process publicly. People need to know how to deal with the pain, but they don't need to have it all paraded out there in front of them. Now, you all know that Gracie and I have a hard life. We have a very difficult life. It's not a bad life. It's just a very difficult life. Well, do you listen in to hear how hard my life is? No. You want to hear what am I learning through this and how am I growing and how am I enduring what sustains us? That's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear me just sit there and talk about how painful our life is. I don't want to hear about your sins. I want to hear about your Redeemer. You, you follow me on that? 
And I think this is a trap we get into as caregivers because so much of what we feel is right up in front of us and it hurts all the time. And it's very easy and tempting for us to just vent it all out. And we need to vent it out. It needs to come out. Every abscessed wound needs to be cleaned out. Okay? But not in front of a crowd. It needs to be done in a controlled environment by people who understand how to do it. I don't want to go to church and have somebody come on the platform with an open, festering, infected, abscess wound in front of everybody there. That needs to be done in private with professionals. But I do want to hear from somebody who has the scars of what it's like to go through that and have it healed. And what they learned through it, how they grew through it, how they were sustained through it, and more importantly, who was the professional that helped him do it? And ultimately, the professional that heals all our wounds, he heals all our diseases, is Christ. Nobody wants me to explain to them the graphic nature of Gracie's recent back surgery. But there are a lot of people who want to know who was the surgeon. Who was the surgeon? And that's when your scars speak because you've gotten through it. Not your wounds speaking, your scars. That's when you're learning to share the process and that's really important for us as caregivers because we do have all this trauma. We do have a lot of graphic things that we have to deal with. But who was the surgeon? Who was the professional? Who was the doctor? Who was the counselor? Who was the pastor? Who was the savior who got you through this? That's what we need to share. This is Peter Rosenberger. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. Well, there's still time to get on board our uh, tours of Washington, D.C. and Mount Vernon, Colonial Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown for 2024. They'll fill up soon. We usually fill up three to four months in advance. So just letting you know that we're filling up. And if you would like to go with us on this vacation with a purpose, that's what I call these tours, your spiritual heritage tours, then what you need to do is go to the website, spiritualheritagetours.com, spiritualheritagetours.com. All the answers to your questions about the tours, the cost, the itinerary, everything is there, spiritualheritagetours.com. And we're going to go to the Capitol. We're going to go to the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorials, Arlington National Cemetery, Mount Vernon, and on and on the list goes. So check that out at spiritualheritagetours.com for June and September 2024. Hey friends, it's Jessica Peck, Dr. Nurse Mama, as your one-minute parenting coach. Do you feel pressure in today's world to be a perfect parent? We feel like if we don't have our kids in the honors program or in select sports or wearing the latest fashions, we are somehow failing them. The truth is, our kids don't want perfect parents, even if that were possible. They want present parents. Are you physically in your child's presence every day? And when you are, are you emotionally present? Are you living in the moment? Are you making eye contact for 20 seconds or more? Are you listening with your whole face and attention? When you feel badly about your child not having something, remember that truly the thing they want most is you. I'll see you on the Dr. Nurse Mama radio show on American Family Radio. Every time I try to make it on my 
Every time I try to stand, start to fall. And all those lonely roads that I traveled on, there was Jesus. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is the program for you as a family caregiver. One of the things I talk a lot about on this program is living in the moment, learning to deal with right now. Now, why do I talk about that so much? Because, well, that's what I have struggled with for a lifetime. If there's one word that describes my life, it seems like, when I look back, it's cringe. You know, because I just think, oh, you know, and somebody once said that when we get to heaven, however time passes in heaven, I don't know what that even means, uh, but the first you know, 10,000 units of that time, we'll all be smacking our foreheads going, oh, that's what God meant. Oh, that's what, you know, we'll just, because we look back and we see so many things that we, we jumped the gun with. And I, I, I have ample experience at this. Okay. <laughs> I have messed this thing up so many ways, but I'm still here and I've lived to laugh about it. I've lived to tell about it. And one of the things uh, I put in the book, uh, A Minute for Caregivers, When Every Day Feels Like Monday, this is my new book, and, and it would be just a tremendous resource for you as you're going through because they're just literally one-minute chapters, and, and I timed them all. But chapter 21 is called When We Rob Ourselves. That's the name of the, the chapter. And I thought I'd share that with you in this block here. One of the greatest thefts to family caregivers comes from our own hearts. See, so many caregivers think that things are being taken from us by other people because we're caregiving, so we get we lose out on everything else. But really, the greatest theft comes from our own hearts. We're stealing from ourselves. We often steal from the moment that we're in to regret the past or fear the future. We're constantly having that struggle in our hearts. Now, normally I wouldn't speak in second person plural, okay? Saying we, our, us. But in this case, I'm going to go ahead and jump on this because I've talked to so many caregivers that I know this is where so many of us live. In fact, I haven't met a caregiver yet who doesn't live in this place of regretting the past or fearing the future instead of in the moment. Although yesterday's events may have arrived with tears and trauma, today remains an opportunity to calm our hearts and deal with current circumstances. As caregivers, we all know our tomorrows most likely show up with challenges. Okay, we, we get that. I talked about that right after the first of the year. You know, what does January 1st mean to a family caregiver? Same thing January 2nd, same thing. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. That's why I wrote the book. When every day feels like Monday. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, what is, what is a holiday? What is a day off? We know that challenges are going to be here tomorrow that we're dealing with today. We know that, okay? <clears throat> but do we also know that unexpected joys may arrive? Are we just as convinced of that? Now, I'm finishing up a almost eight-week stretch in the hospital with Gracie. There's no word of when she's going to leave. My question is, uh, and that's difficult, we get it, but am I prepared to find joy 
and things of beauty and things of encouragement in the hospital? Or is this something we just got to get through this and we can get back with our life? Or is this our life? See, these are questions I ask myself a lot. You know, are we trying to strive to get through something so that we get on to do what we feel like we want to do? Or is this our life? And if it is our life, what are the implications of that? Is it a bad life? I don't think so. Gracie and I don't have a bad life. We have a hard life, but not a bad life. Do we get to see beauty and joy? Unexpected beauty and joy? Yeah, we do. All the time. Back to my book. Surprising beauty awaits us along the way. Yet we are sure to miss it when our focus extends behind us or in front of us. None of this eliminates the grief we carry. However, healthily living in the present allows us to mourn while simultaneously resisting the fear, rage, and despair that often erupts during caregiving. Now, why is it important that we mourn? Before I finish this, let me take a break on this chapter here. There are only one-minute chapters. I'm just adding a lot more to it. I'm sorry for that. But I felt like we could have this conversation today and use this as an opportunity to unpack some of these things I address in the book. Why, why do we mourn? Why, why is it important to mourn? What did Jesus say about mourning? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is something that's going to happen to us in this lifetime. And, and that part of mourning is accepting what is happening, recognizing this is really happening, and grieving over it as opposed to denying it, raging against it, or despairing over it. But to recognize this is happening. And once we shake hands with reality, however painful that is, the comfort can come. We can grieve it out. And the comfort can come. Scripture says that, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it gives us the opportunity to see the greater truth of what's going on. And we also share, I think, more in the heart of Christ. If you notice, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Scripture says in Isaiah. And this is who he is. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We have a Savior who mourns, who understands that. And as he looks out over Jerusalem, there's the spot where he says, and he, and he just wept for, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to be. He's mourning over how, how messed up this is. Wouldn't it stand to reason if we are becoming more like him through our sanctification process, through our, our Christian walk, that we would also mourn over the things that we see in this world? Sometimes the older we get, the sadder we become as we see all the hurt, all the heartache, all the sin, all the devastation, all the brokenness. It doesn't mean that we're going to go around just, you know, falling apart. That's despair. We, we can mourn without going into despair because we know that there is a Redeemer. I love that from Keith Green. 
There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. But you get to the chorus. It's, thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit to the work on earth is done. Well, that's kind of the whole point, to recognize there's still work to be done. But now whose work is it? Ultimately, is it, is it our work? It's his work. And we align ourselves into his work. And that's where the freedom comes in, even in our mourning. That's where the comfort comes in, even in our mourning, knowing that he is responsible for this. We are responsible to him. And that frees us up to live today. Not with reckless abandon, but to live freely. To realize that all of a sudden those scriptures make a, a lot of sense when it says the steps of a righteous man are guided by the Lord. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. All of a sudden we realize, oh, that's what this, oh, oh, that's what this means. And we can live right here, right now. All of a sudden these scriptures make sense. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Consider you know, you know, tomorrow will take care of itself. Has enough words. All of a sudden these things start making sense. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, why is that? Do those things make sense in your life today? And if not, why not? And if so, why? Again, you've heard me say this many times. I have blundered and stumbled along this road for four decades. And I got to tell you, it's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to suffer and be stupid. And I just don't want to be stupid anymore. I don't want to keep banging my head up against a brick wall. I want to learn from this. And the way I've learned through this process is to go back to what Scripture teaches on this. You know, you, you're welcome to try it for four decades, see if that works for you. But it didn't work for me, and I don't want to do it anymore. I would rather embrace these precepts, hang on to this, and stop stealing from myself the joy that is available to me right now, here, today, in this place, even at this hospital. There is beauty and joy and excitement and the spectacular right here today. Probably not going to look the way I thought it would. But if I am so busy regretting and cringing over all the things that I've messed up in the past, and there have been plenty of them, or if I'm so busy living in fear about what's waiting around the next corner, what is happening to right now? And then back to the book, although our independence, relationships, career paths, and even dreams inevitably suffer in our caregiving journey, and they do, as caregivers, every one of those things are going to be hit hard. Okay? Career paths, dreams, relationships, independence, all of that will take a beating. Okay? Anybody tells you different, hasn't done it long enough. Okay? It's all going to take a hit. And a lot of it is just out of our control. But peace of mind is solidly in our hands. We are the ones to decide how we're going to react to this. Are we going to stand firm in knowing what we believe and why we believe it and trust Christ through these things? Or are we going to freak out? 
No one has the power to rob us of that composure except ourselves. We're the only ones that can do that to us. You remember what Martin Luther wrote in A Mighty Fortress? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Do we believe this or not? And that's one of the chapters from my book, A Minute for Caregivers, What Every Day Feels Like Monday. At the end of that chapter, I always have a quote. There's one from Shakespeare. We know what we are, but know not what we may be. Think through that a little bit. We know what we are, but know not what we may be. It's not about feeling better. It's about being better. And that is a different path. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. Oh, Jerusalem, how many times I would have taken you under my wings. They had everything that was necessary for them to know Jesus and follow him, and they went their way. I think for nations, for individuals, there is a day that you have to make the decision to respond to the Lord, and it might be that the door of opportunity after that shuts. Exploring the Word, weekdays, 3 p.m. Central on AFR. The Middle East, that's one part of the world we need to pay attention to, especially the country of Israel. Each week, I'll help you make sense of what's happening in that region through a biblical lens. I'll bring you important information about security threats, archaeological discoveries, biblical prophecy, ministries happening on the ground, and much more. I'm John Riley. Join me for the Middle East Report Special Edition every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. Central on American Family Radio as I connect you to the people, places, and geography of what we read in God's Word. This is Frank Effney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Last week, 10 former FBI executives warned congressional leaders of an invasion that has taken place since 2021 by large numbers of unaccompanied military-aged men from China, Russia, and terror-linked regions. They specifically anticipate such personnel could inflict catastrophic damage on, quote, innocent Americans and the infrastructure that keeps the nation safe and functioning, unquote. This danger is exponentially increased if any of these men are able to marry up with the sort of deadly pathogens discovered in a biolaboratory the Chinese Communist Party secretly set up in Reedley, California. A House committee investigation assesses that there could well be more of these facilities here. The FBI veterans urge that, quote, the border must be secured against these young men, and those already here illegally must be identified and removed without delay, unquote. A failure to do so is an invitation to disaster. This is Frank Gaffney. He will be strong to deliver me safe, and the joy of the Lord is my strength. Welcome back to Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. I am Peter Rosenberger, and we're glad that you're with us. You can go out to hopeforthecaregiver.com. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. There's a little form there if you want to be a part of the program. You just fill it out. Send me a note. Tell me what's on your mind, what's on your heart. And we'd love to hear from you. That is my wife, Gracie, and Russ Taff from her CD, Resilient. And you can go out to hopeforthecaregiver.com and learn more about that. Get a hold of that CD for yourself. I Again, uh, you, you've heard me say this often about how important it is to not put your life on hold as a caregiver. And we tend to do this at various times, uh, thinking that, no, we'll do this later, we'll do this later. But sometimes just, you know, uh, 
we, we get a, a moment of clarity. We realize, you know what? There, later is not promised to us. Let's do what we need to do today, right now. And whether it's uh, being a musician or, or pursuing this or whatever, within reason as you navigate your journey, uh, my guest today is Ethan Burroughs. He is a novelist. Uh, he's an award-winning novelist. His uh, first two books are already out. The third was coming out next year, and the fourth one will be out several years after that. He and I went uh, from the same town, same high school, and uh, um, he also has parents that are aging and dealing with some very serious realities. I don't share a whole lot of his background simply because um, I don't think we can, <laughs> and, and you'll know more about that as we listen to him talk about these books, and so I'm being a little bit vague on that. But these books bring a great um, scope of history and, and a lot of the things that we see plastered in our media every day, but we don't know how to connect those dots. Well, he does, and he's one of the very, very few who've done the kind of work he's done for as long as he's done, and now he's actually taken time to write about it. And I don't know anybody that's done like you've done and written from somebody who's actually lived it. And he was sharing before we went to the break about what was going on in the uh, connecting the, uh, the 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 dots with um, the Tehran, uh, and then they they had the cult that followed. So t- take us back into this, and then share a little bit more about how you get into this. We're going to talk about how you wove your faith into these books and everything else. But take us back into that place in, in Tehran. Okay, so yeah, in 1979, you had this this hostile takeover of our embassy by a student uprising led by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, who uh, just returned, had his this glorious triumphant return to to Iran from uh, a year and a half where he lived in Paris doing collecting political and financial support <laughs> for his his return. Uh, but two weeks later, and this is the footnote that no one seems to know about. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I spent a lot of time talking to very smart people, and collectively, no one seems to know a whole lot about this siege of Mecca. It happened two weeks after the the, the takeover uh, in Iran of, of our embassy, um, but this is a brutal, hostile, bloody melee where somewhere between 500 and 1,500 people died violently, and then the surviving militants, terrorists, Messianic cult members, call them what you will, they were taken out by the Saudi authorities to nine different cities around the country summarily beheaded cover up that's it now as i started exploring this story and why no one seems to know much about it i wondered if the two could be connected somehow and peter i'm going to put you on the spot you read my books you know that uh khomeini planned his return to tehran from paris do you know where he was before he was in uh, before paris do you recall before he was in paris i knew he was in paris Wasn't he in the United States? No, no. You're thinking of Tehranjalis, where hundreds of thousands of Iranian exiles live. No, okay. he never came to the States. He was in southern Iraq. And this is what's important for Oh, that's me right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you remember now, yes. He was in southern Iraq, and the reason important, and I won't go into a lot of details because, you know, this is, well, I want people to write, read the book. But the, 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 he was in southern Iraq, which is the holy, has the holiest sites of Shia Islam. And, and this is where it connects to U.S. intervention in the region. And I think it's very important for those of us who have served in the region or who have family members who have gone over and, and you know, given up of their time and in some cases, you know, um, paid the ultimate price uh, for uh, the intervention there. 
Ayatollah Khomeini spent 12 years in southern Iraq. He was there uh, cohort, uh, co you know, in cahoots with the, the Shia religious establishment. Most people think the Shia are in Iran. Yes, Iran is a majority Shia country, but so is Iraq. And Iraq has the holiest, like the Vatican for the Shia faith is there. And Saddam Hussein could not, uh, who was from the Sunni community, could not have his arch nemesis uh, in a powerful position next door in Iran. And and taking with him the fealty and the loyalty of the Shia community in southern Iraq. And so, you know, I think that, for, again, if you want to look at it from the military perspective, we kind of stepped into this, this sectarian conflict that was spread out from Saudi Arabia through Iraq and into Iran um, without knowing a whole lot about that and why that matters and why the, the stronghold of Shia Islam is in southern Iraq. So, now, wait a minute, we, we bolstered up. We bolstered up Saddam Hussein to push him against the Ayatollah Khomeini. That's right. That's right. And, our, and, our and that man, set the our, table for what happened 30-something years later. It's well, still you know, going on. I, well, let me rewind it a little bit. The <laughs> very same, same things that the, the cult members, the Messianic cult members, the, the claims that they, the, that they were demanding when they took over the Vatican of the Islamic world in Mecca, was repeated verbatim by a guy of the name Osama bin Laden in 1989. So the siege of Mecca happened in 1979 when uh, Osama bin Laden starts his Al-Qaeda, the foundation, the, the, the terrorist group that we know as Al-Qaeda or at the South we say Al-Qaeda. Um, when he started that, <laughs> he was using the exact same terminology and verbiage and rhetoric that, that the, the Messianic cult used 10 years before. And his older half-brother was part of that cult, and that's 100% true. I told you the terrifying well, parts are all I, I know. That's, and as I was reading this, I realized that's, that is the, the foundation of where you start in this book with all of the stuff that none of us knew. The, the United States remained yeah. clueless about, for the most part, except some people in the intelligence agency, and nobody was really connecting those dots because intelligence during a lot of this time was kind of segmented, correct? Well, yeah, I, I use the word silo uh, for a reason, and I'm not here to make, you know, to cast aspersions on, uh, you know, uh, how intelligence was collected, but I do know that it's con it's more convenient to compartmentalize things, and I would argue that um, you need a fuller picture if you're going to understand the region and, and why it matters to us. Uh, it matters to us because uh, you know, uh, our interventions drum up a great deal of antagonism and antipathy toward the United States. And yet, you know, we kind of need some of these countries when it comes to our energy needs. We need some but, of these but countries you think when we about, want them. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, you think about all the, the blood and treasure that we have spilled into that region and how many people really know nothing about what's going on. Yeah. And, and we're going because these people in Washington sat around a table and said, we got to do this. And nobody's knowing the history of what's going on with these people, what kind of fight we're stepping into. And, and I look at, you know, I, I think Gracie and I were there at the, at Walter Reed, right at the beginning of the Iraq and Afghanistan war and all that was going on. And we saw all these guys coming back, just, just horrific wounds. And still nobody really knows what, what's going on here. What are we trying to accomplish here? What are we stepping into? And so your book has unpacked all of this. Yes, you've said it as a spy thriller novel, but the, 
the way you've done this is what's been so breathtaking for me because I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you? It's like every, there's a point where I started turning pages and saying, are you kidding me? Every page. And, and, and then that's when I called you. I said, which part of this is true? And, and that's when I was like, oh, my goodness. So yeah. it, it was. And then I love how you, you made this protagonist just this, you know, a, a guy with strong Christian faith from South Carolina, um, very much kind of like what you grew up doing. And you were thrust into this and trying to learn this and keep up with this the whole time. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's now there are parts of the book that are fairly violent. Um, (laughs) Well, I I can say I've, I've certainly been targeted myself. I've had an office blown up. I've had to, and I'm sorry to say this on on the air, but I've had to clean up body parts. Um, You know, some of the things that we've seen and been a part of is, has not been pretty. Um, and, and, you know, our soldiers are coming back and, you know, I have family members, you have family members, I'm sure, who have served over in places like that. Um, you know, uh, they've come back and, you know, and you, you referenced, you know, my, uh, my own Christian background and, and my protagonist, my books are not overtly Christian. They're not, you know, I, I, I think if I want to do an honest approach of, of, uh, to the intersection of faith and politics, I needed to make sure I needed to establish some bona fides. And, and so I, I chose to have my character his is a, a practicing Christian and he finds himself in the heartland of Islam. Yeah, it's like you just so, kind of threw him into it. Yes. And, and he's got to play catch up with things that he just had no idea. And it, and it tests his faith, but he comes through it. I mean, he's, he's not, he's not broken in this. He doesn't, he doesn't, walk away from it it actually deepens his understanding on some things and i was really impressed by the the way the character developed through this because it gave him insight that he would he did he just didn't have well you know i think he may have started like so many of us where you know uh the uh, based on the assumption there's good and evil and and i'm hoping i'm not testing your theology or even my own or any of your listeners um i i would say that it, that's a convenient label, good and evil, because at the other end, you find he finds good people, good people whose faiths, which differ from his, but good people whose faiths are exploited by by uh, despotic rulers or or you know the spoilers, the 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 you know the the villains in the book. And again, the villains I use are based on real people. Well, and I think we see that in pretty much everywhere. There are always people that are manipulated by these things. And that's a tragedy that we as Christians hang our heads in shame because we've seen it. Um, and some of the great people of our faith have gone to a wooden stake and were burned at the stake because of people who said they were doing this in the name of God. Our Savior was crucified in the name of God. So there, there's a lengthy history it's the human condition of people being manipulated by religion. I love how you are bringing a whole new component of revealing this to people and showing them things that they never never saw before. We're talking with award-winning author Ethan Burroughs, and he has a series of books he's done, Messianic Reveal, uh, Writ Revealed, and more coming as well, and you're going to want to check these out, ethanburrows.com. ethanburrows.com. We're going to talk more with him when we come back, don't go away. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver. We'll be right back. 
I'll never forget walking into the hospital room after Gracie had her second amputation. Both legs are gone now. And she looked at me. She said, I know what I'm going to do. And I was kind of startled. I said, well, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to help provide prosthetic limbs to my fellow amputees and tell them about Jesus. And I said, well, baby, can we get out of the hospital first? But she never let it go. And for almost 20 years, we've been working out of Ghana, West Africa. We treat patients all over there from other countries that come there. We send supplies. We send teams. We sponsor patients. We work with a prison where inmates volunteer to disassemble used prosthetic limbs so we can recycle the parts. All of this because Gracie trusted God with her heartache. We've got a huge shipment of supplies that is being loaded up right now to go out soon. Would you help us do it? Standingwithhope.com slash giving. Standingwithhope.com slash giving. There's prosthetic feet, knees, pylons, sleeves, adapters, all kinds of connectors. All of these things we are sending over there so that people can walk. We're going to point them to Christ. Help us out. Standingwithhope.com slash giving. Isaiah 40, 31 says, But they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What really is waiting on the Lord? Waiting can be acknowledging God in every moment. Waiting can also be following the peace of the Holy Spirit, even peace in the chaos. Now, don't let waiting on God be an excuse for timidity or laziness. We already have some instructions, so we should not wait for a thunderous voice for what is already clearly told to us. Maybe you were called to be a missionary, or maybe you're just supposed to pray, read the Bible, and love more. Waiting on the Lord is being patient when God says to wait, and it's being obedient when God says, or has already said, to go. But where God hasn't spoken, continue to wait and pray, and He will renew your strength. This has been an encouraging word from American Family Radio. Welcome back to the program. This is Peter Rosenberger. This is Hope for the Caregiver here on American Family Radio. And we're glad that you are with us. Hopeforthecaregiver.com. And as I said, sometimes I like to talk to caregivers who are doing things in the midst of their caregiving, things that I think are extraordinary, such as the case with my guest today, Ethan Burroughs, ethanburroughs.com. We've known each other forever from the same state, same high school. And he has uh, several, a series of books that he's done that are just amazing thriller novels, but there's more to it than that. And of course, he's going through some caregiving issues of his own. I have to be a bit vague on some of these things, and you'll just have to trust me on it, but I can't share a lot of who he is and his family, and so I'm being a bit vague, but he's there. I want to depart just a hair before we get back into more of your stuff as a novelist, I'm a writer. I mean, I've written several books, but my, my stuff's not uh, fiction. I mean, and, and I, I, I'm not doing that. You're very creative in what you've done. And one of the things I've encouraged people on this program to do is really explore whatever can give, you know, release to the whatever's going on in their soul. Caregiving can be a pressure cooker, and, and, and it causes a lot of deep feelings, and, and, and it feels kind of claustrophobic in your heart. And I've encouraged people to find those things that give that release. You found, you know, something in your heart that, that expresses this through writing these great stories. What what advice would you give to people who want to write, who feel like they have a story they want to tell, they're not sure how to go about it or where to even start? What advice would you give? 
Well, let me first say I've read all of your books as well. And um, I think this, the thing that sticks out to me from your books is one is how sadly real they are. And, uh, and I know you write from a great deal of pain, uh, but they're also pretty funny. Uh, and I think you have a, uh, you and Mr. T share a PhD in pain and suffering. And, uh, and I, I think that and it comes out in your, <laughs> uh, and I think, and, and I, and I, I think you will admit is probably a coping mechanism, but whatever it takes, you know, right. Yeah. You, you, uh, you, you have to, you have to grab onto that hope, uh, and, uh, that you're always standing with. Right. Um, so, uh, but what the advice, you know, if people are thinking about writing, I'd, I'd, I'd first start with your motives. One, if you're writing to be rich and famous, um, don't, you know, try out for the NBA instead. If you if you write because you have a story, I write because I have a story. I have a wonderful story. It's compelling. I can't not write. Um, and I love sharing uh, this, this story with people. I like to see their reactions. Um, and, and I'd say that, you know, if you have a story, you need to write, you just carve out some time, turn off Netflix and, and write. Um, if, uh, but don't do it for the wrong reasons. Don't do it so you can be a role model. We have enough role models. You either write because you have a compelling story, uh, or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be writing, whatever, whatever helps you communicate your message, message. If you're trying to bolster and build up a community or connect with people, inform people like you do, Peter, you're, you know, you do, there's an element of entertaining. But there's also it's a very a small element, element at times. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that's a very small element. Yeah, but I mean, there's not a lot of fun in your background. I mean, no. what, your expertise does not lend itself to a lot of entertainment value and a lot of fun. You, yeah, uh, you know, I, I know you've gone through some dark days, uh, but you take that that darkness and you use it to transitive verb inform people and i think that that's what's key you have a story to tell and you can't not tell it well i had a in fact i was talking to a lady today that uh her son just died after she'd been taking care of him for 36 years he had a lot of issues going on in his life and um significant disabilities um developmental he was blind a lot of things and she was talking about writing his story and i thought well i asked her i said well how about writing your story because yeah. I think that would be something that people wanted to, because we all have a story in us. And I think it's so easy to write about somebody else's story, but this is in, in many respects, this book series of books he's read, this is your story. This is what you want to, like you said, in the first block, uh, you wanted to pass on to your children of understanding why they were raised in this environment, what this means, how this all fits. And it's your story. And I think that for all of the listeners to this program, all my fellow caregivers, you know, you have a story and like, I love what you said. Don't try to do this to write a, a hit novel and become rich and famous as a writer. Do it because it's authentic to who you are. Yeah. And if there's one thing I've come to treasure about your books, it's, it's uh, that it is authentic. They're, they're real. And, and the way you describe the people, you help people get to know, not like you did with our, our mutual missionary friends over there, helping them, integrate into that community so that they can better connect and relate. It's, it's so important not to just parachute in and start just um, yelling at people and preaching at people versus just getting to know them. And this is what you've done in your entire career. You've gotten to know people. You've spent times on the streets and the bazaars and, and all these things you do. What is something about the Middle East 
that you would like people to know that they may not know here in the West? Uh, I would say just right off that they, the, the people of the Middle East want the same things we want. They want, you know, good, stable, they want prosperity. They want a good, stable environment to raise their children and, you know, raise their families. They want educational opportunities for their sons and their daughters. Um, and, and they want, you know, they, they want a voice in their community. Uh, exactly the same things that we want. Exactly the same things. They just have um, a great many impediments that we don't have. And some of those are governmental. Many of those are cultural. Many of those are religious. And, um, and, and that's one, one of the things, if you'll, if you'll allow me, uh, writ reveal, I took it in a different direction. While I was studying and researching for Messianic reveal, I, I came across a study in 1972 by German scientists in Yemen, and, and they basically had old parchments, old Quranic parchments that were written. This was bits of the Quran, and they, they determined that these bits of the Quran were written before Muhammad had his visions from the angel Gabriel. Or Jibril, as they say in Arabic. By the way, that could get you in a lot of trouble for saying that, can it? Absolutely. It got that's why I have invited. to be kind of vague about some things with you. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I don't shy away from talking, going right to the heart of the matter. Um, but I want to be very careful. I'm going to be very clear. I do not say anything in any of my books that denigrate the people of any faith. I'm not out to do that. I'm not out to say this, this faith is right, this faith is wrong. I mean, uh, certainly, I think uh, Presbyterians have something over the Episcopalians, um, and you know. Uh, but I'm not going to say I'm not going to put one faith over another. I don't do that. I do not attack faith. I do not attack people. I attack the people who distort and twist and manipulate the faith of others. That is that is what I do in these books, and I do it head on, absolutely. And I've had Muslim friends read my books to verify that I don't do anything that outrage. In fact, they come back and they say. I've learned so much about my faith and my history. And I tell you what, I find that the highest compliment when I've had Muslim friends come back to me and say, I learned so much about my faith and my history because so much of it is whitewashed. And there are states sometimes in our own communities here in the States, uh, there might be a little bit of that too from time to time. Oh, I've seen it it when we just kind of, we've done this in our, in our own Christian faith. There's a lot of pulpits out there that, that, spin things that are not accurate and, and right. people follow along out of sincerity and, and devoutness, but they don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting that Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, go ye therefore in all the world. He didn't say go out there and get everybody saved. He said, go there, share the good news and make disciples, teach them, teach them. Yeah. That's what making disciples teach them. And, and the fact that, that you're helping people have a greater understanding, you can't just go into people's lives and just start, like you said, just start holding them down and preaching at them. You have to learn who they are and speak to them and translate and, and, and communicate with them in a way that both of you can understand. And, and you've given amazing tools in this, uh, in these series of books that you're doing of people, uh, of a culture, of a world that, that the West really has very little understanding of you're right but yet that is a culture that gave us our faith our mathematics our science our you know there's so much of our enlightenment came from that very region and one thing i like to point out most of my first three books all largely take place in iraq and not because i have this deep well it's because i have a deep fascination with iraq 
mainly because after Israel, Iraq is the second most mentioned country or country that we identify under current geography uh, in the Bible. Iraq plays a critical role. Abraham, of course, is from Iraq. And I won't go through all of the prophets who, who come from Iraq, but it's a huge list. And, uh, and I say just very quick, uh, Babylon Reveal, my third book, it explores from a political and secular angle the simple question of why does God hate Babylon so much? And I dare to answer that question, and it will blow your mind. I, can't I, haven't, I haven't seen this one, by the way. I haven't no, read this I'm, book. I'm holding that to the end of July for for you. Okay. Well, I, and I, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I, I really have enjoyed this, and I've enjoyed the process of of you that you've shared behind the scenes with me uh, of this journey. And I remember when you started doing it and I was thinking, okay, how's this going to work? But it, it's turned out to be so much more. You've had an opportunity now to engage with quite a few people um, in, in this, and you've raised more than a few eyebrows because you're saying things that no one has ever said. Um, not that I've ever seen, I don't see it in the news and I'm a news junkie and so forth. So I am, we're going to have, when this new one comes out, we'll have you back on. We'll talk about this some more. I think it's just a fascinating journey into someone who's not putting their life on hold, doing it right now. And, um, and I want you to know, Ethan, how much I appreciate you taking the time on this today. Well, Peter, I want to thank you, uh, one, uh, you know, for having me on, on, on the air, but also for what you're doing. I know you're inspiring, you're touching the lives of of thousands, literally tens of thousands of people on a regular basis. And, uh, and I just, uh, as someone who's been touched, who's followed you, who's read your books, who's listened to your broadcast, I really appreciate it. You bet. You're quite welcome. EthanBurrows.com, B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H-S, EthanBurrows.com. Get a copy of this book. Give it to a friend. It's a great gift. This is Peter Rosenberger. We'll see you next time.